We're in uh, Romans chapter 15, and we've been looking at the first uh, seven verses here uh, last couple weeks, and we'll probably be looking at them in the next couple weeks as well. So uh, it's always good to hear the, hear the updates. Thank you, Sam, for sharing that. It's, it's, it's wonderful to know that we're having impact not just here but around the world, right, through the different missionaries that we support well, we're talking about the power of oneness through Christ, and we're, we're speaking of unity within the church. And uh, if you've not been with us, you can go back and you can download the app or you can go on the website and hear uh, the messages previously. I was reminded of this commercial. I was reading through a commentary this past week. Several years ago, there was a well-known advertisement for a brand of underwear called BBDs. And the advertisement went like this. Next to myself, I like BBDs the best. (laughs) Now, naturally, the commercial about underwear is talking about the fact that our underwear is worn next to our skin. But the humor came out of that whole commercial when you you begin to understand that, that no one is better liked by anyone than yourself. All right, that's just the way we're, we're, we're set up. And the concern, the concern of each person for himself or for herself is so well kind of ingrained in our human nature that if you go against that thinking, it, it's, it goes with a lot of problems. Okay, a lot of people stand up against that and say, oh, no, you, know, you have to look out for yourself. Uh, no one can test that at all. Um, you, you look at the different policies of our government as well as the way we deal with each other and we deal with ourselves. All that flows out of that idea that we really do have a concern for ourselves before others. Well, this section of Scripture in Romans kind of flies in the face of that. It specifically stands up against that kind of thinking. Um, it's, it's kind of a refutation of that principle for it says that the one who has believed in Christ is first of all to look out for someone else. And most of us don't do that. If we're just honest, our intuition our just our own self wants to look out for us as number one. And so we're going to look at this morning a little bit about what that means and uh, one commentator said this way when he was speaking of uh, a section in Philippians chapter 2 that we're going to look at a little bit uh, about having the same mind as Christ does. And the commentator wrote this, Paul does not leave the question of the worthy life which produ- produces the steadfast stand until he brings it to rest on the worthy life as it is found in the individual, a man not of self-seeking conceitedness, but with a correctly humble estimate of himself, seeking the welfare of others and putting them first. Steadfastness depends on unity and unity depends on me. (laughs) That's one way to put it. Well, we've been talking about unity. We've been talking about the body of Christ being one. And we saw that in the first uh, couple verses here. And last week, We're looking at basically seven spiritual characteristics that should cause us 
to really promote oneness within the body of Christ. And uh, if you follow along, I'll just read our text for us. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. It says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. And through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So we've looked at the first couple of these last week. First of all, we looked at verse 1, how we should bear the burden of the weak. Paul has in mind here the church, and he's talking about there are certain people who are mature, who are strong in their faith. There are certain people who are weak in their faith, and that's okay. But it's up to those who are stronger in their faith, to bear the burden of those who are weak. That's what he says. Now we who are strong, he includes himself in that. He was an apostle, clearly. He says we ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And we, last week we looked at the idea of that word ought. It has the idea of owing a debt, having a strong obligation. In other words, you know what? He's saying it's not optional. This is not something that the the strong believer can opt out of. You know, I'm getting tired of these whiny, weak Christians. I don't want to deal with them anymore. No, you can't do that. Paul says that would not be right. We're obligated to bear the burden of the weak. And that word bear means to picking up and carrying someone's burden. Literally. Not just looking at it, not having compassion on somebody who's carrying a great burden. Say, I'll pour them, I'll pray for you. No, it's literally taking that burden off their shoulders and carrying it for them. In the New Testament, it refers to carrying a pitcher of water, carrying a man, even bearing the yoke of obligation. And so this is not something that's optional for us as believers. We're called to do this. And Paul showed us that in his example in 1 Corinthians 9. He himself says, you know what, I'm a free man, I can do whatever I want, but I'm not going to go that route. I'm going to bear the weakness of those who are less mature than I, and I am going to become all things to all men that I might by some means save some. And he wasn't just pleasing people, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about being a men pleaser. Matter of fact, he talked against that in Galatians. He says, am I here just striving to please men? We're not striving to please men, because if I was, I wouldn't be a a bondservant of Christ. So we don't just do these things to please people. We do it because it's the honorable and the right thing to do before God. So we bear each other's burdens. Secondly, in verse 1, we said not to please ourselves, and not just please ourselves. Notice it says, and not just please ourselves. You know, this isn't saying that you go out and you sell everything that you have that's nice and put ashes on your head and, and, and throw a burlap bag on for, for cloth and walk around Rebel City. Woe is me. That's not what this is saying. 
Because I'm so concerned about everybody else, I'm just going to deny myself of everything. That's not what this is saying. It's saying, and not just please ourselves. In other words, we're not just called as believers to please number one. We're, we're not called to do that. It doesn't mean you can't please yourself. But that shouldn't just be the, the only thing you're doing. In addition to that, you should be concerned about pleasing others. And when you are concerned about pleasing others, usually that involves what? It involves sacrifice. <laughs> it involves some form of sacrifice. Sometimes when we sit down and watch a TV show, and my wife asks me the question, do you want to watch a show with me? I know that that's going to involve sacrifice on my part. I just know it because I don't like the shows she watches. She watches some English show, some, I don't know, some British show. I forget what it's called. But it's weird humor. I just sit there. She goes, don't you think that's funny? I'm like, no. I don't find any humor in your show. She's cracking up. So I have to sacrifice. But then there are occasions when I'm watching cops or some military show, and I can tell she's sacrificing because she's over there on her iPad. Hey, look at that. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Care less. But I'm, like, glued to the screen, right? See, when we are bearing the burden of the week, when we are not pleasing ourselves, it involves sacrifice. And that's what Christ has called us to. That's what... Philippians chapter 2, verse 21 tells us. He says, you know what? Some people in leadership within that church in Philippi are doing it after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. Just because someone's a pastor, just because someone's an elder, just because someone's in charge of a church does not make them spiritual. There's a lot of people that are in ministry for completely the wrong reasons. And they'll account to God one day for that. And that's very unfortunate. But you know what? We need to constantly be checking ourselves, don't we? We need to constantly be going before God saying, what's my motivation in this? Why am I doing this? Why am I, you know, pouring... Uh, pouring over this food that I'm going to serve the congregation on Sunday. Why is this a big deal to me? Am I doing it for Christ or am I doing it so everybody will come up and say, oh, what a wonderful meal you prepared. Or why am I studying so hard for a Sunday school class so that the kids would just be mem- just you know, blown away by my take on this passage? If if that's your reasoning, you're probably going to be not a Sunday school teacher very long because you're going to be disappointed. You know, you don't do ministry to get the pat on the head or the pat on the back. You do it for the audience of one, and that one is who? It's God. It's God. And so the third thing we looked at last week is not just bearing the burden of the week, not just uh, not pleasing ourselves, pleasing our Neighbor, okay? He points it out there that we should please our neighbor. And we looked at this last week. And and Paul included himself. Let each of us, okay? We're called to please our neighbors for their good, for their edification. 
In Romans chapter 14, verse 19, it says this way. Paul said this, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Does that, is that just easy to do, especially within the church? You know, last week we talked about the church being like a bag of marbles, you know, and, and, and that netting that holds all those marbles together. They're all different sizes. They're all different colors. That netting is Christ. And what would it be like in a toy store if there, that netting wasn't there? Can you imagine? The marbles were all over the floor. It'd be chaotic. See, the, the unity that we have as Christians comes based upon solely our unity in Christ. It doesn't come based upon our religious background or who we are or you know, what, how much we make or what job we work. None of that has anything to do with it, what culture we come from. And unfortunately, in the 70s and 80s, the church made the mistake of trying to create churches that just was a niche for certain people. So they're going to just reach these people or they're just going to reach those people. And there are some churches today that do the same thing. You know, they're so concerned about pleasing their people that they can't just have one worship service. Even smaller churches operate this way sometimes. It's not like their churches are full to overflowing, so they need more, more services. The whole reason they have multiple services, well, you know, some people just like the hymns. So we have a service just for the hymns. And the pastor gets up there and he wears a suit and he tie. And it's very formal. We have a choir and an organ. But then... The more informal service, basically, is, you know, the, the pastor goes and he changes his clothes and he comes out in shorts and, and sandals and sits on a, a stool and has a little chat with the people and they have kind of a rock concert going on. And the people that like that kind of music, they come to that one. That's not the way the church should operate, beloved. That, that's just showing intolerance among the body of Christ, so we, we need to be sure that we are understanding what Paul is saying here, that we should please our neighbor for his edification. Now, remember, we're not talking about issues of sin. We're not talking about issues that are sinful. We're talking about issues that are optional. You know, how long is your dress? How long is your hair? Do you wear makeup? Do you not? Do you drink wine? Do you not? All those things. Okay, that the scripture doesn't specifically forbid as sin. We all, have, we all have preferences in those areas, and that's okay. But just because somebody else in the body of Christ doesn't share your preference, it doesn't make them a sinner. It doesn't make them wrong. And that's the problem that Paul was dealing with in the church of Rome. You had Gentiles there. You had Jewish people there. And so the, the Jews would come in and they would bring all their, their practices from their Judaism. You have to worship on a certain day. You can't do this. You can't do that. And the Gentiles would come in and they would, sometimes they would come out of a pagan background and they would see, you know, someone eating a piece of meat that was offered in the temple to an idol and they would just come unglued. Just like the, the Jewish person would come unglued when somebody bit into a pork chop. All right, same thing. But this, the sad thing was, is they were focusing on things that were minor issues. And they were dividing the body of Christ over that. And so these are ways that we cannot, uh, we don't want to go down that road. So we want to bear the burden of the weak. Please not ourselves, but please our neighbor. And the one thing I want to share with you at this point, 
because we don't have a lot of time to get into Christ as our example this morning just because of the communion and the, uh, the uh, missionary update and everything else. But I, I want to share with you what the New Testament looks at when it looks, when it, when it looks at the church. What are some New Testament images for the church? How is the New Testament viewing this thing that we're a part of, if we've been born again, if we've come to Christ, if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, we are part of the church. Now, you may not be an official member here at this church. That's okay. That's not a big deal to us. What's more important is that you're a member of the body of Christ, the universal church that you have come to the cross and you have recognized your own sinfulness before a holy God. And you have said, you know what? I'm tired of carrying this burden of sin. I can't fix it. God says he can. I'm going to put my faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone to forgive my sin. If you've done that, you're part of the body of Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. And so when the New Testament looks at the church, what does it What does it view the church as? Well, first of all, it views the church as a family. As a family. That may be a good thing, depending on your background. That may be a bad thing, depending on what kind of family you have, right? I mean, it just, some people look forward to Thanksgiving. Other people just, I don't know, don't want to deal with the family. See, Christians belong to what? We belong to the family of God. We belong to the family of God. And therefore, we need to think of ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how this works. That's the most common terms that are used for Christians, for one another in the New Testament earlier, earlier in the church was brother and sister. That's what they called each other. God is called father and Christians are called what? Brothers, sisters over and over and over again in the epistles. Well, what is the characteristic of this image that speaks of that relationship resulting from what God has done for us in salvation? One of the ways that salvation is spoken of uh, by God is beginning of, of spiritual children. When someone is saved, they are called a new creation in Christ. Uh, in John chapter 1, I put, a, I think, a bunch of uh, scriptures up there. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, uh, Jesus says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, what? Children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Some Christians say, well, I believe and I got, I got a free will and I, I willed to be a Christian. No, you didn't. This verse proves it. It says you were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Well, then whose will was it that I got saved? It says, but of God. It was God's will that you got saved. And if it wasn't his will, you'd never be saved. See, this is the thing that we get a little mixed up. Because we believe today in our modern day church, we live, we, we live in this, this day of, of man-centered gospel. Man-centered 
salvation. It's all about you. It's all about your choice. The idea that God would choose us before the foundation of the world in Christ is just foreign to most Christians. They don't like that. Why? Because it it crushes every little bit of them out of that salvation process. And it leaves you laying at the cross going, thank you, God, for saving me. Like we sang this morning, you know, we would never have come to Christ if it wasn't for his working in us. Jesus spoke of that same reality when he spoke to the the, the teacher in in the New Testament in Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 7, he says, you know what? You must be what? Born again. You must be born again. Those who are born again have become members of God's family. And they're brothers and sisters one to another. It has important consequences for us as a church. It has important consequences for us as members of that, as believers. Since the members of this spiritual family are chosen and they're brought into this family by who? By God. Guess what? We don't have any say in the matter. (laughs) But instead, we should welcome whomever God chooses to be part of the body of Christ. We don't have the right to stand at the door and say, oh, you know, the black church is down the street. Oh, the Asian church is over there. Oh, you're from this background. Oh, you know, our church is a little different. No, we don't have that right. Oh, you you look, you know, maybe too wealthy for our church. Maybe you should go to this or, or you look too. No, that's not what we're called to do. See, and that's so, so important. Because whom God brings through those doors is whom God brings through the doors. And whom God saves, God saves. We don't have the capacity nor the ability to be a judge in that matter. It's not for us to say whether we will associate with someone who's part of the body of Christ or not. That's not our call. That's sin. Now, I'm not saying you have to be best buddies with everybody within the body of Christ. There are certain people that, you know, to be honest, it's, okay, you know, I'll be your friend, but I ain't going to go the other way. That's just reality, right? I mean, we all all draw close to certain people that maybe have certain personality or certain likes or dislikes. Okay, but don't you dare judge that person based on that. You know, we all have... Friends and, you know, acquaintances that, hey, we get along with and other people maybe we don't get along with. That's okay. But don't allow that to overcome your unity in Christ. Secondly, you have to be committed to each other. That's what a family does, right? I mean, you know, how many times have you watched a show and one of the family members gets in trouble? It's like, we got to go do this. Why? Because we're family. You know, family should mean something. The problem with our society today, guess what? Family means nothing. You can have a, a, quote, family and not have a father or mother. You can have a family without having any parents. You can have a family without having any children. There are people that call their pets their family. That's okay if you're here this morning. I understand. Just trying to keep it real. But we have to be willing and we have to be available to help each other out. We must defend each other. 
in this hostile, sinful world in which we live as members of the family of God. One writer put it this way, although God wants us to be brethren, listen, he does not mean that we are to be identical twins. Don't you like that? Hey, we're brothers and sisters. That doesn't mean we have to lock, walk lockstep and all dress the same and talk the same and look the same. That's called a cult. The body of Christ is not a cult. You don't have to conform to some outward, you know, uh, presentation of the way you dress or whatever. You're called to be like who? Like Christ. And foremost, in his attitude and his motivation, all those things in our minds, we're called to be like Christ. We're not called to be like Christ in the way he dressed. They'd really think we were weird if we did that. Why? Because that kind of dress doesn't fit in our culture, especially here in the U.S. Some cultures it does, but not here. So when you look at families, when you look at siblings, usually they're different. I mean, in my family alone, I have six brothers, some of them are deceased now, two sisters. But when you look at our family, you have people with brown hair, you have people with black hair, you have people with red hair. All from the same parents. Okay, some have certain color eyes, others have certain color. Some people are really good in sports. Other brothers weren't that good. Some people are very detail-oriented. Other, others couldn't care less. Why? They're siblings. One will be artistic. Maybe, you know, when I look at my grandkids, my youngest granddaughter, Gabrielle. I mean, this girl just doesn't stop. Okay, I mean, if, if she were here and I would say... Gabby, sing a song. She would probably sing a song right here in front of everybody. I mean, it's, it's, she, has, she just needs to be on that kind of platform. It's part of who she is. She's a performer. She loves to do that kind of thing. Where maybe Sophia is more, <laughs> that's the last thing she'd ever think of doing. Okay? She doesn't like the spotlight on her. Those are not good or bad qualities. It's just showing the difference. You know, when you look at the body of Christ, some of us have wonderful organizational skills. Some of us are morning people. Some of us are night people. You know, we're all brought together in one body for a purpose because God knows what we need. It doesn't make the person, it's maybe not as organized as you, wrong. I mean, sometimes it's refreshing to have somebody that lacks organizational skills around because they think kind of out of the box. And sometimes that's a good thing. Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 8 and 11 to 13. Look at what he says here. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. What gifts did he give? Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. Why? Why did he give these gifts to the church? So they could do everything? So they could be in charge of everything? No. He gave them, verse 12, to equip the saints for what? For the work of the ministry. See, being a Christian's hard work. It's hard work. It's hard work ministering to one another. It's hard work doing what the Bible tells us to do toward one another. 
it doesn't just come natural. I mean, to be honest with you, I could probably think of a million other things I could be doing right now. But that doesn't make it right. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, you, you have to really, we could all say that. So he gave us these gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Look at what it says, for building up of the body of Christ. We're called to build up the body of Christ, not tear it down. Well, how long do we have to do this? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When will that be? When we're in glory. It's definitely not coming this side of glory. Don't think somehow as a church, you're going to work really hard. And boy, eventually you're just not going to have any problems. Everybody's just going, hey, brother, hey, sister. Everything's just going to be, you know, sweet as honey all the time. No. Why? Because we're in this sinful world. We're in this flesh. We have that underlying motivation, that underlying draw to put ourselves as number one constantly. That's why Jesus said, you know what? If you want to be a Christian, if you want to follow me, he doesn't say, just work really hard and be the best that you can be. He doesn't say that. What did he say? He says, take up your cross. First of all, what was that? An instrument of death. It wasn't the little gold thing you hang around your neck. It's an instrument of death. And they understood what it meant. He said, take up your cross, deny yourself. That's an ongoing denial. It's not just a one-time deal. It's constantly denying yourself. And then, then you can follow me. That's what Jesus said to his own followers. And guess what? When he said those words, some of them said, ah, no thanks. I want to go my own way, Jesus. Have fun. Hey, the meal was great, but, you know, we'll see you later. Why? They weren't willing to die to themselves. and weren't willing to take up the cross. So we have to look at the church as a family. Secondly, the Bible says that we can look at the church as a fellowship. A fellowship. This really stresses the unity of the church. Now, fellowship probably isn't a real good English word to use for this. Um, but it's the best word we have in English. In, in the Greek, it's the word koinonia. It has the idea of sharing something or having something in common. You know, in the modern day church today, we think of fellowship. What do we think of? Food. We got food coming up. Fellowships and food. This is going to be good. By the way, we do have food and fellowship in the way, uh, in the fellowship all across the way. We have a wonderful meal every, every week after church. And thank you for those that prepare it. But partners who held property in common or had shares in common of business practices were called koinonia. So the Greek New Testament period, that was a time when, wonderfully, God ordained the language to be koine Greek, which basically means it was common to everybody. All right, when God allowed the word of God to be translated and brought up in, in that, that environment, Greek was just a, a common language. 
So as far as being Christians, being in fellowship with one another, you have to stop and say, well, how many things do we hold in common with each other? And how do we express those things to be mutually beneficial to each other? I mean, that's what the Bible says in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, Paul writes there to the Philippian church. He speaks of it as a fellowship in the gospel. See, the one thing that we have in common as brothers and sisters in Christ, part of God's family, is that we have Christ in common. We have Christ in common. It also speaks, the New Testament in 1 John 1, 3, of fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It speaks of fellowship with the Spirit in Philippians 2, 1. Or 1 John 1, 7, fellowship with one another. Well, how do you express this inner locking fellowship that we share? James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, the gospel is something we share in, but there are also things we must share out. Things we should express to and with one another. And we need channels to do that. You can't just throw a bunch of people in a room and just, oh, okay, I guess that's fellowship. Sometimes fellowship takes place in larger meetings like this. Sometimes fellowship takes place more commonly in smaller meetings, Bible studies, home, home groups. Now, our church is not a huge church by any means. But you know what? It's, it's, it's good enough size that if you just came on a Sunday morning thinking that somehow you're going to benefit from the fellowship here that happens right here in this, this worship hour, you're sorely mistaken. It's not going to happen. It's just not. You, we don't have enough time. We don't have enough resources to, to do that for you here in an hour and a half. That's why we offer other things. We offer midweek Bible study. We offer uh, women's Bible studies, men's Bible studies, men's breakfasts, opportunities for discipleship, opportunities to serve in ministry alongside of another brother or sister in Christ. The reason we offer those things and we don't just have a Sunday morning service and that's it, it's because we believe that fellowship is important and fellowship needs to happen in other places other than just a Sunday morning worship service. John Stott wrote this. He says, the value of the small group is that it can become a community of related persons and in the benefit of personal relatedness cannot be, and in that, the benefit of personal relatedness cannot be missed, nor its challenge evaded. I do not think it is an exaggeration to say, therefore, that small groups, Christian family, or fellowship groups are indispensable for our growth into spiritual maturity. See, do you want to become one of the strong that, that is bearing the weak? Or do you just want to be the weak? If you want to be strong spiritually, Sunday morning service ain't going to cut it. Bottom line. It's just not going to work for you. Now, hopefully you'll be blessed by the time here. You know, you sing hymns, songs of worship and have fellowship, dialogue with one another, and maybe hopefully have some good teaching. But you know what? If you're just counting on that to get you through a week of constant bombardment, in a sinful, sin-stained world, you're sorely mistaken. You're going to be gasping for air by the end of the week. 
And when you walk through those doors, we can tell because you're just, oh, oh, man, pastor, hope you got a good word for me today. I am. Well, this week was, why? Because you're, you're just trying to do it Sunday to Sunday. You're thinking, man, somehow if I can just get till Sunday and get there and fellowship with us, I'll be okay. And that's, that's not what the New Testament church was. What did they do? They met daily. Can you imagine if I said, hey, you know what? Uh, God gave me this vision and we're just going to do it. We're going to have a service every night. <laughs> yeah, you clap now. That was a test, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> but stop and think about that. That's what they did. And they met in their homes, by the way, too. They didn't have to come out to a church for a service. They had small groups that met and they had meals together. See, that's what you should be doing on your own. Getting together throughout the, the week. So the church is a fellowship. And lastly here, we'll conclude with this. The, the Bible refers to the church as the what? The body of Christ. The body of Christ. A number of New Testament books develop this idea. And they all have kind of a different emphasis. 1 Corinthians is probably the best one. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we've read this before. So I can read it for you. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul brings us this word that's almost kind of comedic in in some of its, its language. He says in verse 21 there, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, speaking of the human body, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Verse 24 which are more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed, what? The body, giving greater honor, speaking of the body of Christ, the church, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, guess what? We all suffer. If one member is honored, then we all rejoice together. See, these are terms here that Paul's using to this church in Corinth that was just riddled with division. It was riddled with problems and sin, to be honest with you. But this is what it means that the weak need to take the strong. And the strong also need to take the weak. We need to get along. There's no dispensable members of the body. Just because someone's weak spiritually doesn't mean you just do away with them. No, it requires patience. It requires time. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul really emphasizes here the work that Christ has done. It says, from him, Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part, what? Does its work. See, this stresses this outward witness and services that we have of others as Christ's church. 
You know, we're not called as a church just to come here and have a little holy huddle and then, you know, break up and then come back next week and have another holy huddle. We're called, what Jesus said is we are the what? We're the light. We're to be the light of the world here in, in, the, in the environment in which we live. The light to the darkness. And, and we need to make sure that we are doing that. That when the world looks at Grace Bible Church, what does it see? Does it see a church that's riddled with division? Does it see a church that's constantly fighting and bickering? Or does it see a church that's interested in serving them, reaching out to them, that's, that's willing to sacrifice so that others could come to know Christ? In summary, basically, here it is. Family stresses our relationship to God because he's the father who brings us into this family. The aspect of fellowship stresses our relationship one with another because we share these things in common as Christians. And then the reference to the body really stresses our relationship to those who are without the church. You say, well, how does that work? Because we exist to what? To witness and to serve those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ. And if we don't have unity going on, if we are not emulating Christ's example within the church... What makes you think that somebody from the world is going to look at us and go, yeah, I want to be part of that? (laughs) Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So we need to really trust that God is doing a work in and through us each and every day. And we need to make sure that we're not just willing to trust that somehow a 40, 45-minute, 55-minute sermon is going to fix you for the rest of the week. Because it's not. We need to fellowship one with another. We need to build each other up. And that takes work. It takes time, which many of us don't have a lot of. And that's why it comes down to priorities. We all have the same amount of time. The people that come out on Wednesday nights have the same amount of time as the people that don't. Why are they here on Wednesday night? They're here because of priority. It's simple. It's real simple. And I'm not saying that as a guilt thing. I'm really not. But it's the truth, and you know it's the truth. So we need to look at those things and question our own selves and ask, are we doing everything that we can for the cause of Christ? Or has the world captivated our hearts and our minds in such a way that we think that "Eh, just coming on a Sunday is good enough, I can check it off. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time in it this morning. And Lord, I know it's a brief time, but Lord, we pray that you would minister your grace to our hearts. Help us to remind ourselves that it's for this body, the body of Christ, that that Christ died. And we're given the promise that even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so we're part of a winning organism that's alive and growing and thriving. And you've called us to serve one another within the confines of the church to give that picture of unity to those who would walk through those doors or that would see us at the grocery store or hear about us at our work. Father, we pray that our lives would be living up to what you've called us to be in Christ. If there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Maybe God's convicting you even now of your sinful life before a holy God and 
you're wondering, how do I fix this? It's simple. If God is calling you, and God is drawing you, and God is convicting you, you need, you need to turn to God, and you need to admit you're, you're a sinner. You need to confess your sin. Cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Show me what I need to know to have that relationship right with you, to be reconciled back to the proper relationship that you desire me to be in with you. I guarantee you, if you reach out to God that way, because he's drawing you already, that he'll work. That's a prayer that God will answer. And you'll see his love and his forgiveness and his grace pour into your life as never before. And the Bible says he'll make you a new person in Christ. It's not just turning over a new leaf. It's becoming a whole new person in Christ. He's the one that created you. You don't have to be afraid of that. He created you. He knows exactly what's going on in your life anyway, whether you tell him or not. So it's best to come to Christ now. If that's your desire, I pray that you pray that prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me this morning. Father, help us believers to go out into this world and to share that message of hope and forgiveness with those who have yet to believe. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.